design. It's not ours. You, you put the family together. You decided how that was going to work. You made, made people in your own image, male and female. You designed the reproductive system. You designed children to be, come forth from their parents. This is your design. And so, Lord, we have been given a great gift of stewardship to care for these little ones. And we want to continue to uh, attract, God, by your grace and your mercy, young families to this church. That there will be a legacy of heritage of family after family that were raised here underneath the word of God. Lord, we are not here to replace mom and dad. Or maybe just mom in some cases. Our goal is to come alongside them. So we pray that you would help us do that, Lord. Thank you for church, Lord. Thank you that you command us not to forsake the assembling of it. You know it's good for us to be here, Lord. You know this is what our souls need. So now as we turn to your word, we pray that you would nourish us, strengthen us, challenge us. Oh, Lord, even convict us if there's areas that are not of you. And God, we pray that we would not only be raised in worshipers, but we would be worshipers. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled today's sermon, The Redeemed Glorify Christ with Their Bodies Now and Forevermore. The redeemed glorify Christ with their bodies right now. I'm talking physical. Bodies right now and forevermore. You'll hear a theme throughout this sermon where it, the Bible is going to show that our bodies were purchased by Christ. See that in the very last verse, God since his son, he purchased us. There's an there's a understanding of a slave block and freedom and, and a payment and all of that. And we are to live for Christ, bodily even, with these bodies God has given us. And I want you to hear this. These bodies will be resurrected someday. And so there is a great stewardship that God has given us in this life. Now, I love a passage like 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It, of course, is in the second letter given to the Corinthian church. The first letter is harsh. It's, it's, they're, they're, they're out of line. They have not listened to what God's word has been saying. But somewhere along between the first and first inspired letter and the second, there, there's changes and there's repentance. And, and so Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all, with unveiled faces. See, God's word can be difficult at times, especially if you're in sin. It comes at you with a perfect standard of God. And here the Bible teaches us that, that Paul says, look, we all were with unveiled faces. Stand before him now. We've not veiled the gospel with legalism of some sort or our own personal way we think we can live our lives, but with unveiled faces, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord. And when you look into the word of God, it should reflect God's presence in you. That's what saved people have. We have Christ living within us through the spirit of God. And then the Bible says we are being transformed from the same image, from glory to glory. And I believe what that says, that the glory of our salvation to the glory of eternity, God has and is transforming us. There is a present continual tense that God's transforming us. And so we are to use these bodies for his glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So he brings in this great trinity that is a work in our life. Now, as you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
verse 12 through 20, you realize that the Corinth church is not looking to the Word of God. They are actually looking to their own wisdom, their own fallen wisdom in a lot of ways. They're looking to the world's wisdom. And the church is in a mess. They will not look to God's Word. Paul is writing inspired letters to them. He has been there. He's taught for a year and a half. Uh, Apollos has followed in behind that and taught for another year at least. And yet they reject what God's word is. I read a quote by A.W. Tozer this week. It said this, An honest man or woman with an open Bible, a pad and a pencil, is sure to find out what is very wrong very quickly. Isn't that interesting? If we'll just submit to the word of God, it will fix our marriages. It'll fix our troubles, the things that plague us. If we're an honest man or woman with an open Bible and a pen in hand, God's word will correct things that need to be corrected in our lives. Well, the Spirit of God has uniquely made us partakers of the Godhead. That's an interesting verse. It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. He has divinely made us part of the Godhead. So that means God has placed his spirit within us. We have this unique, re, uh, unique relationship with the Godhead because we have now become the temple of God, the indwelling of the spirit of God. So these bodies, these bodies that God has given us, as frail as they are, as affected by sin as they are, they are special to God. Your body is special to God. And he gave it to you. And it's not, I want you to catch this today, it is not only special in this life, but it is special in the next life because he's going to resurrect this body. And he's going to join it with a heavenly body and it's going to be like the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ's body. And so in this passage, I want to challenge you with five thoughts that, that they're very vivid. It's a very vivid passage. It's very colorful. You know what I mean. You heard it read. God wants us to glorify him with our bodies. So five thoughts this morning from this vivid passage. Number one, the love for spiritual liberties may lead to the justification of sin. The love of spiritual liberties, a lot of people talk, about, well, this is my liberty, this is my freedom as a Christian. I can do what I want. Oh, be careful. That may lead to sin. Look at verse 12 with me. We'll start there. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Well, like the previous sections here, Paul does not miss works. He gets straight to the point here. In essence, Paul is saying, if such were some of you, remember that in verse 11, right? This is people who have been washed, they've been sanctified, they've been justified through the glory of Christ, why, why have you taken your theology and ruined it and not looked to the soteriology of God, the salvation of God, to let that correct your physical living? Now, notice he says that all things are lawful for me. Well, I think what Paul's doing here is he's not confronting the behavior at first. He's, he's confronting the theology that drives the behavior. 
Now, this all things are lawful, it's most likely a statement, and, I, and after reading much on this, I think it's probably true, it's most likely a statement that they had shot back to Paul. See, they didn't like Paul's biblical view of sexuality. They didn't care for it. Look, we live in Corinth. This is the way my family did it before. This is the way my father did it before. My father always had uh, maidens. My father always had mistresses. This is the way we've always done it before. And I'm a Christian now. So all things are lawful, and most likely Paul has picked up on this. And the reason I say that, because notice he says the same phrase twice in one verse. And if that isn't enough, he brings this phrase back in chapter 10, verse 23, and you've got to look at this. Chapter 10, verse 23, all things are lawful. Oh, he just brought it back a third time. So this is most likely a saying that they're holding on to. But then he says this, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things are edifying. In this, the context there is that they were participating or at least attending demonic worship at temples. And whatever was going on there, some party that they wanted to be involved with, Paul says this is not... All things are lawful, but this isn't right. And not everything is right. And I think the Corinthians had made a huge mistake when they said all things are lawful to Paul. See, Paul ran everything through a Christocentric, a Christ-centered, gospel-saturated view of God's word. So if you're going to say, hey, all things are lawful, Paul's going to go, I wonder how that glorifies Christ. See, he's always running things through that. And, and he wants to make sure that freedom in Christ does not mean freedom that veils Christ. We know that Christians who fail are poor examples, right? We've seen them on TV. We've seen, we've seen it in our life. They veiled Christ because they chose to say, I know what God's word says, but I want to do this, and I'm free in Christ, and I'm going to go do this. Now, we see sayings like this all the time. For example, one that's floating around right now is love is love. So if that, if that came to me, my response would, just like Paul, see, Paul, they're saying all things, all things are lawful for me. Then Paul responds, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me. Then he surrounds again, but, not, but I will not be mastered by any of it. So if someone says love is love, I would say, uh, not, not all so-called love is true love. Because only God, who is free of sin, can perfectly define true love. See, that would be my response. See, love is not just love. The Bible says that love of money is the root of all evil. Is that love? Right? The Bible says love of money is the root of all evil. So is that love? The psalmist in Psalms 52 says, love evil, you love evil more than good. Falsehood more than speaking what's right. So is that love? You love evil? See, see, you can't just say love is love. They're, the Bible says no. There's a grid here. God, his characteristic, one of his many characteristics of him, is love and he defines love. Just as he defines truth. Now, you can see where the Corinthians were trying to apply their worldly philosophy against biblical truth here. And, and they've elevated their thought of what they believe is lawful against what God says. So now they have their own version of what is right. He uses a couple of Greek words in this passage, exten and uh, exusa, exusa. 
They're both words mean law or liberty. Here, I think it translates the last one, mastery, over over it. And both of them mean I have the authority or the right to determine, right? And so, so here we have this clear tension between the Corinth church and the apostle Paul over this issue of how are you going to use your liberties and do you care about the gospel? Look at chapter 8, verse 9. This is a theme that we're going to see in several different passages as we work our way through 1 Corinthians. Paul says, but take care that your liberties of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. See, when you find people who are so consumed with their liberties, they have very little concern with the body of Christ. I have certain liberties. Some, some liberties I've chosen not to participate participate in because I would never want to veil the gospel to someone. That's my own personal decision. But this, the Corinth church, they didn't, they didn't care about this. There's this crisis over authority. They're arguing for their freedom. They want freedom without restraint. And Paul says, look, that kind of freedom leads to slavery. It leads to slavery. Notice he says in verse 12, not all things are profitable. See, the gospel was greater than being lawful or right in your own eyes. It's because the gospel is based on, is based on not what is, what is good and beneficial for yourself, but what is beneficial for the glory of God and your spiritual growth and those around you. See, we learn to die to sin. So the gospel was not their goal here. Their gospel was self-fulfillment, and it was affecting the others in the church. See, see, to them, they, they, they did not see the power of Christ's resurrection. They saw the power in their own liberties. J.C. Ryle, writing about the effects of friends that you may walk with, he says this, If friends will not walk in the narrow way with us, we must not walk in the broad way to please them. Now listen to what he says here. Health is not infectious, but disease is. You can't breathe on someone and give them good health, but you can certainly give them a cold. <laughs> I mean, isn't that interesting? And so, so Ryle says, look, if friends won't walk in the narrow way, that doesn't mean we go, oh, well, they're not going to walk on the narrow way. Let's go over on the broad path of destruction and walk with them so we can get them saved. This is the fallacy of missionary dating. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And this is what the Corinth church was caught up in. See, the disease, the disease of can't we all just get along is deadly because it means compromise. It means compromise to God's standard, compromise to God's standard on marriage and gender and all the things that are crashing in around us today. Now, notice Paul says at the end of verse 12, he says, I will not be mastered by anything. Excusia is the, is the Greek word here. And, and, and so the second reason for this cautioning and, and, and cautioning against exercising what I would say sinful Christian freedom is that the Christian should not be overpowered by anything. I, isn't that true? Sh shouldn't a Christian have victory through Jesus Christ on over all things? Now, I know there's a process sometimes, but a Christian should be free of this. We should not be under the grip 
of sinful influences that oppose gospel living. See, he's looking at this church that says, oh yeah, we believe in Jesus, but their life mirrors the town they're in. It opposes the gospel living. So as soon as you claim your freedom to do whatever you please, there is great opportunity for enslavement. See, when you, when you find somebody, and this happens all the time, we have people come to church, they want, well, I believe in this. Well, okay, well, the Bible says this. Well, I, so I don't agree with that. Hmm, you're pretty, you're pretty adamant about this, aren't you? Oh, yeah, it's my freedom. You can just see slavery starting to take its toll on those people already. I want my way. So there's an enslavement to personal liberty here. You can see this happening in this text. And many have fallen into this kind of self-deception and spiritual pride. And it's rampant in the church right now because the churches want money in the plates. And so they say, okay, yeah, homosexuality is okay. Oh, be whatever you want. That's fine. Jesus loves you. Love is love. It's total deception. And it's justifying sin in order to have spiritual liberties. And we have to be careful there. This is not legalism. This is love for Jesus. This is knowing he's coming back someday. And the God of marriage, the God of gender, the God of of living perfect, that's our God. He's perfect and all he does is going to come back and he's going to find us. And what are we doing are we serving him? And look, you can say, oh, I've got to quit doing this, this, and start making lists. Yeah, that's not going to work. Love Jesus and his word. It's your only hope. Legalism doesn't work. And that's what Paul's trying to do here. Second thought. The death and resurrection of Christ will rescue our bodies from our sinful flesh. Look at verse 13 and 14. Food is for the stomach, and stomach is for the food. This might be another saying here. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Verse 14, now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Well, in order to drive his point home here, Paul uses the stomach and food. Um, And then he moves to this theological statement about the body to affirm the, the resurrection of Christ in the resurrection of our bodies. Now, again, I think this food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food. It may be one of those uh, slogans or expressions that the Corinth church had shot back to him. And, and that, what that means is the Corinth church was arguing that all bodily functions are generally equal and basically irrelevant for life in the future. That would probably be their argument. So in other words, they were trying to equate their liberties to have immoral relationships with everyday functions like eating or drinking. That's what they were doing. And Paul sees it. So in their mind, both sex and the body were unrelated to the future kingdom of of God. I'll just do what I do here. That's later. They were separating that. They were abusing grace. Immorality is as natural as eating, is what they're saying. Now, Paul quickly responds to this. He takes their little stomach and food illustration and says it's not equal. In fact, the food in the stomach will be done away with, but the body won't. Now, he uses a verb here to, 
NASB says to do away here. Um, Katageo is the word here. It means to carry, it carries a wide range, but it's used in chapter 2, verse 6 of rulers. The rulers of this world will pass away. It's often translated to abolish or to bring something to an end or to nullify or even destroy. So, so he says that stuff's not going forward. But notice Paul is emphasizing the body is. The body's not going to go away. God loves these bodies he's given us. He's going to resurrect them someday. And so because of the word of God promise that they'll be transformed and glorified, we should treat them as a gift from God. Now, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to prove this. Paul does this all through his epistles. Philippians chapter 3. You're going to love this passage. Now, I want you to think that all those who have gone before us have some form of body, right? And God has made a place that our true citizenship is, and so he is prepared to transform us. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a citizenship, and in this, in this place where God calls our citizenship, the kingdom of God, it has citizens, members of it. They're physical. There's, there's nothing but physical about this. There's eagerly waiting for the Savior to make us and bring us to this great land that Mama B is now there and enjoying, but there's an eagerness for this. And then verse 21, who will transform the body, now look at this, who will transform the soma, not the flesh, not the flesh that is, that, that's usually a term where, it's, where it talks about our wickedness and our fallen state and so forth, but transform the soma, the body, of our humble estate, because it has been affected by the fall, into conformity with the body of his glory. So here's what I believe. I believe when we die, we're given a heavenly body. And, and I believe this because when, when, when you find Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah are there. There's instant recognition of them. It's so much recognized that they see Christ in his glory. They see these other two members who, who clearly are with him and come from heaven. They want to build tents, tabernacles for them. They're identifiable. And look, notice by God's exertion, by the great exertion actually of Christ, of his power that he has given everything subject to himself, he'll do this. <coughs> so, so clearly in Paul's mind, there can be no connection between the body and immorality and the, the stomach and food. In fact, Paul doubtlessly sees this as blasphemous, that you would make such that you would look so poorly on what God made in his image and connect it to food. Notice in the end of verse 13, this is why, because our bodies belong to the Lord. Now again, I've mentioned this already, but he doesn't use the word sarks, which is flesh. He uses the word soma here. And most of the time when Paul's talking about the flesh, he's referring to our weaknesses, our sin, our fallen state. But here body, soma, speaks rather of the whole person. It identifies the person. This is who he is. This is who she is. This has been made for God. And so the body can't be discarded as 
unimportant like a food or the stomach chamber. Because the body is, notice at the end of there, is for the Lord. It's an, inter- it's, it's an instrument. It's given to mankind to serve the Creator. So this brings in an interesting thought. We go to Romans chapter 1, just listen to this for the sake of time. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Now listen to this. Their foolish hearts was darkened, professing to be wise, is exactly what the Corinthians were doing. They became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now, what he's saying there, sometimes when we look at that, we go, oh, they worship creation. Yes, they do. Four-footed animals, birds, and things like that. But the phrase before that, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God, that's who we're made in the image of, in the form of corruptible man. So they, they reject the image bearer of God. This is why abortion is rampant. This is, this is why they, they, they don't mind that people die in some ways. There's not a love for the body that God has given us. They don't see the glory of God reflected in image bearers. And so they take that image bearer that's supposed to bear God, and they begin to transform that into what they want, and they worship that body. And if you don't believe so, watch TV the next couple of months. You're going to hear every gym, every diet, everything's coming at you because you are to worship that body. And see, this is what they were about. The Corinthians church had sinfully fallen in love with the flesh of man. And they chose to dishonor God by worshiping the flesh and not honoring God, the body made in his image. Now notice at the end of verse 13, it says the Lord is for the body. Well, this completes Paul's statement and helps us understand that just as food is necessary for the stomach and it has a function, right? So is the Lord necessary if the body is to function the way God intends it to be. So how do people do what they do to their bodies and choose to live in this immoral world. They reject God. And when he gives them over to themselves, they do horrible things to themselves. See, God is for the body. And and if the body is not for God, it's quickly misused. Oh, brothers and sisters, be careful with this tent. Yeah, it's getting old. It hurts in the morning a little more. It's kind of a mess but it's God's mess. He made it, and it belongs to him. And there's misuse of it, and so God's work of redemption includes the whole person. And see, this is why Paul is reformulating the Corinthian statement, right? They, they say here that the food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for his food, but he reformulates it and says, but the body, the soma, is not for immorality, pornea. The body is not for pornea. It's for the Lord. The body is for the Lord. Look at verse 14. Now God has not raised the Lord, not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. So in light of verse 13, the the Lord is for the body, Paul elevates our understanding of our physical bodies. And here's how he elevates it. This is what he does. 
The body belongs to the Lord because in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, now think about this, he has given himself for our bodies as part of the redemptive work because our bodies are destined for resurrection. So when we think of Christ on the cross and we think of resurrection, we think, oh, he did that because he forgave my sins. And yes, he did. That's the beautiful gospel. But there's a part of that, that he did that because he's going to resurrect these bodies. He died on that cross because he promises to bring them back. It's an amazing thought. It's part of his redemptive work because our bodies are destined for resurrection. What a gorgeous reminder. See, the theme of bodily resurrection, it dominated the early church. Dominated and it's in, it's in every New Testament passage. And we marvel that the Father raised the Son's body from the dead and certainly indicates something very important about that. God raised him. He was not simply the Son and existed in spirit, did he? No, he walks through walls and asks for fish to eat with the disciples. They recognized him. I, see, I think sometimes... Christians think of the afterlife as that we're just a bunch of sparklies out there, floating around. I wonder who that is. It's awful shiny. Brothers and sisters, God gave you a body. Use it for his glory. He's going to resurrect it. And it's going into eternity with you albeit a much better form. But if God cares about it that much, shouldn't we? See, this is the point he's making while they're using their bodies for immorality. He's bringing them back to how God views the body, isn't he? Now, the disciples, they recognize this. They saw Moses and Elisha. And I believe, without a shadow of a doubt, that Mama B is recognizable. And I don't know if she's got candy in that purse, but people that are there before her know her because God cared about her body. And someday he'll resurrect that earthly body and it'll be joined to the heavenly body. And this is Paul's giant crescendo while he gets to, to 1 Corinthians 15. Everything's working towards that eschatological resurrection of our bodies in chapter 15. And he's trying to motivate us to live for Jesus. And someday he's coming back. And it's worth living for him. What Paul is simply doing here is he's drawing your attention to the fact that resurrection indicates that our bodies are far greater importance than food and stomach and immorality. He wants the reader to grasp God's divine initiative. And look at the end of verse 13, 14, excuse me, just like Philippians 3.21, he'll do it through his power. He'll do it through his power. Third thought, faithfulness to Christ will guard the believer from the horrors of sin. Faithfulness to Christ will guard you from the horrors of sin. Look at 15 through 17. Do, not, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make it members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now, Paul is going to apply his reformulated statement. The body 
is not for immorality. The soma is not for pornea. But it is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. So now he's going to apply this. And he's done this several times. And based on his previous statements in 13 and 14, Paul says, don't you know? Don't you know? See, he's combining his thoughts here. And, and, and maybe this is how I wrote it down. I think he's saying, are you kidding me? <laughs> don't you understand that the body of believers are members of the body of the Lord and your body will be resurrected and you will be like the Lord's body. Therefore, you can't join yourself to some wicked thing like prostitution, pornography, anything else like that and become members with her body because your body belongs to the Lord. Why would you do that to the gift I gave you? See, Paul is bringing the heat, isn't he? And clearly, Paul brings in this divine affirmation of creation order, doesn't he? You can hear Genesis 2, 24 in this, that two bodies joined together become one. Piper said on this, he said, God created sex as a beautiful gift and placed it precisely where he knew it should be. Marriage between a man and a woman, a male and a female. This is what glorifies him. And to drive his point home, Paul is contrasting the statement of immorality with a statement of union with Christ. You want to get into union with a prostitute when you're in union with Christ. I think he's wanting to make them gag on their sinfulness. Think about our glorious Savior. Think about all he accomplished for us. Men, you want to beat pornography in your life? This is how you do it. You exalt Christ. You see how glorious he is. You see your union with him. You're one with Christ. And for that reason, it gives you strength to cling to him and not to something that is pagan and godless. Oh, there's good news here, brothers and sisters. Our bodies are members of Christ's body. We're joined together. Notice this. You become one spirit, small s, with him. I like that. We don't become little gods. Oh, but we're in spirit with God, aren't we? I mean, we, we understand him. We understand Christ. In a sense, we share a personality in some sort with him, right? We, we, we take on his attributes. We start to be loving and kind and, and holy and just. We positionally are many of those things, but we pursue now in, in sanctification to be more like Christ. Oh, what good news that is. But look at the warning here. You're not to be members of a prostitute in any way, shape, or form because you join yourself and you become one with her, the Bible says. See, for Paul, believers are united to Christ in the most closest and most intimate fashion. It's a beautiful thing here. And they are in Christ and their union with the Lord. They are members of the body of Jesus Christ. Is when we look... It's when we grasp this relationship. It's when we get a hold of who Jesus is that sexual immorality becomes heinous to us. I've met with many men and I said, let's pray that you'll learn to love Jesus so you'll hate your sin. That's, that's how it gets beat. 
You keep growing in your view of Jesus Christ, not looking down on the cross as the Corinthians were doing in chapter 1. They did not see the power of the cross. They didn't see the value of it. They were into their own worldly philosophies, and this is where it took them. Oh, you want to think you got things figured out, man, woman, young person in here? This is where it'll take you. See, this is why we keep coming back to the Word of God. This is why this church preaches expositionally. I look at this passage and go, God, I got to teach this? Yeah, this is what I got to teach. Because it's God's words, not Scott's. And so we learn to say, oh God, we want things your way, not our way. And so when a Christian, now think about this, engages in sexual immorality, it means the member of Christ has abandoned their imminent, I mean, their, 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 their close, um, close God-given unique relationship with Jesus for a relationship with something he died for. That's powerful, isn't it? When you, and again, the context of sexual immorality, because I know somebody's going to come and say, well, there's a whole lot of other sins you could have talked about. Well, I will. We'll get to them. <laughs> but this is about sexual immorality. And so you give up this beautiful relationship in a sense with Jesus Christ and you engage in a relationship that caused his death. See, that makes me not want to partake in anything that killed my Savior. So there is this horrible profaning of the body going on in Corinth. And Paul's saying, look, your body is reserved for the glory of Christ. He's going to resurrect it. He's going to join it with your heavenly body. Oh, use your body to glorify me. And he ends this section with this great phrase, me genetto. It's a, it's a word that means in their vernacular what it said, impossible. How can you do That's impossible. <laughs> How can a person do that? It's unthinkable. <laughs> the KJV translators they didn't know what to do with this word, so they just said, God forbid. <laughs> that's, that's the idea, right? And so Romans 6, 1 says, how can we continue in sin that grace would abound? God forbid, may it never be. That's impossible. How does a Christian do that? Oh, you can see how adamant he is. Look at verse 17. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Well, this is what the Bible says all through. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll get to this, verse 12, 14. For even as the body is one, yet many members, all the members of the body, though they are members of one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized, identified into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We are all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is one member, not many. Ephesians 2, 18. For through him, Christ, we have our access into one spirit to the Father. Philippians 1, 27. Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Look, faithfulness to Christ will guard you from the horrors of sin. It'll guard you. Do you look at Jesus Christ that way? Do you see him as one you want to be faithful to? Oh, that'll help my relationship with Gina. That'll help my relationship with you too. 
That'll help me in temptation. Oh, I see my life. I, by grace of God, I want to be faithful to you, Christ. I want to be faithful to you. Fourth thought. Flee immorality and don't give way. Don't give away only what belongs to Christ. Flee immorality and don't give away what only belongs to Christ. Look at verse 18. Flee immorality. Every other sin that is a, a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Well, here we find an imperative. And I could read it this way if I would translate it in my English. It would say, make it your habit to be free of immorality. Make it your habit continually to be free of immorality, Paul tells the church in Corinth, and the Word of God is telling us today. See, the Corinth church was trying to justify their immorality. Paul is systematically dismantling their argument through the glories of Christ. And Paul's telling them it's time to flee these sinful practices. There's no other way to treat them. Jesus speaks of such practices, and he says, cut the hand off. It's better to enter enter the kingdom of God without a hand. He uses this dramatic and and very strong language, figurative speaking, to say, take serious action against sin. And Paul picks up on that. And listen, delaying one's departure from immorality will only reveal your true heart. Counseling men through the years who continue to fall back into sin we would just go, this is your heart. Well, Pastor, I don't know why I did it. I don't, I don't know how I fell back into it. Because that's your heart. That's what you love. That's what you're married to. That's what you're faithful to. Oh, are you faithful to Christ? See, that's what beats this. And most likely these Corinthians had taken great exception with Paul's view on sexual immorality. And they're firing back these little comments, and he's taking these comments on, these worldly slogans, and he's challenging them not to waver on their Christian behavior because Christ is worth it. Now, statements of prohibition will often fall on deaf ears, right? Parents, you know this. We know this on our I'm not going to do that anymore. That's why Paul's carefully explaining the theological position of every believer here. That's why Paul is saying that sin of sexual immorality is a sin against one's own body. Which turns out not to be only against one's own body, but against sin against the Lord's body, the Lord's temple. See, he's bringing in theology to help you, give you motivation not to fall into the sin. He's giving you a word picture, the temple of God. To help you go, oh my goodness, I just took the temple of God where it should never have gone. See, he's using dramatic, spiritual, theological language to help get our attention here. And remember, sexual sin is the context here, and there's a sense of urgency. He's trying to get to this church. This will destroy this church. This will destroy marriages and homes and children. And the destruction of sexual, sexual sin doesn't seem to end And he's after this. But Paul is arguing that every other sin is outside the body in a sense because all other sin is directly arises from within the body like sexual sin. Now, now I think he's quite possibly, Paul is dealing with yet another slogan here, right? Sin is outside the body, right? They're saying, well, you see, I, I, I sin over here, but that's not who I really am. It's a little form of agnosticism, right? 
well, yeah, I did that, but that's not me. That's, that's the old me. That's, that's over there. Paul goes, no, no. No, no, you can't justify sin that way. And I don't think Paul is saying that sexual sin is maybe the most serious. I mean, you shoot somebody, I think that's pretty serious. It has a lot of consequences. But, but other sins will uniquely affect the body, but a sin of immorality, I want you to think about this, means that a person took that body, now listen with me, which was a member of Christ and placed it in union with one who doesn't belong to him. So I always said adultery is giving away only what belongs to your spouse. But Paul takes the argument further. He says it's giving away what belongs to Christ. Wow. Giving away what belongs to Christ. And see, other sins, maybe drunkenness, lying, stealing, um, certainly um, that involves what comes out of the body, and all of these things are heart issues, right? But sexual sin arises from within and welcomes a host of sin that corrupt your heart, your mind. It's powerful. And they create, sexual sins create a desire for personal gratification and, and they drive impulses and, and, and that impulses arise within and they start to completely take over the body like no other sin. And sexual sin has a way of internally destroying a person, making them a shell of what they used to be. Because when sexual intimacy is misused, it corrupts the human at the deepest level. And there's a point here. There's a point here where a person just gives themselves over to just a debilitating sin. If you look back and look at most church discipline cases, I've been involved in churches for you know, 30 some odd years now. The majority of them are around sexual immorality. And how many of them come back and turn back from that sin? Have you seen any? I've had the great blessing of seeing a few come back and restored in the church. But the majority, because sexual sin is so gripping and so bad, it drags that person completely away. And with that, all the harm that hurts. Do you see why you don't want to be a part of a church that doesn't do church discipline? Because it's God's body, it's Christ's body. We're many members that belong to him. And how can you let that stay in a church? How could we, as people who love Jesus, let that be in here and not try to help that person, not go to them once and twice and three times and try to bring them to, to repentance? How can we not do that? And yet churches across America refuse to deal with this. And they pollute the body of Christ. They let that be among their members. Oh, friend, if you're here today and you're in sexual sin, I beg you to repent now. Don't hurt the body of Christ. Don't misuse it. Don't give it away. It doesn't belong to you. Your body belongs to Jesus. I don't think Paul's trying to be some religious legalist here. Remember, the Spirit of God is speaking through him, and the words that he's penning are, have no expiration date, right? And so the truth is just as true today in 2021 as it was then, because God's immutable, it doesn't change. So the church needs to strive to accept what God says, because he says that wicked relationships, from homosexuality to gender challenges and all of that, he says, it's an abomination to me. 
And so we must work at this to say, oh God, we're in a country now that is welcoming this. Help us lovingly, but rightly through the Bible, speaking truth and love, speak and stand. It's not popular. We'll be outcast. But listen, brothers and sisters, either God's word is all-sufficient, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and timeless, or it's not. Right? Because if it isn't, I've got to go start studying something else. I don't have anything else. This is what we hold to. So this book, this gospel, keeps you from giving away what belongs to Jesus. Honestly, open your Bible, get a pen in your hand, and let God's word correct you. He will do that for you. Last thought. We are priceless temple of God. Look at verses 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. Well, this is the sixth time in this chapter that Paul drives his point home with saying, don't you know? I think he's kind of at the point like, you can't handle the truth type of thinking. You, you, I give you truth, but you can't handle it. And so he keeps saying, don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? That means they do know, and they have heard this. The desire is selfish. And so not only is the Corinth church rejecting Paul's apostolic position, but they have held to their worldly philosophies, and now they're justifying their sinful behavior. And now he calls the body a temple. And this isn't the first time. Chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Don't you know that you're the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells within you? And here again, he says, notice in this verse 19, and that, I love this phrase, and that you are not your own. So I wrote a strong statement in my notes. Buckle up. Here we go. In the context of sexual immorality, Paul is saying that when these immoral acts are committed, in a very real sense, they are committed in God's worship center because the body belongs to the Lord and our body in, in, in the spirit is residing in our bodies. And the body is the temple of God. It is God's worship center. One author said, think about that, those immoral acts being done in this building, which is a far cry from what the Lord Jesus Christ is. Wow. And, and go just a little bit farther with me. If we are the temple of God, that means everything that God has is in our temple. The Shekinah glory is in our temple, isn't it? The Bible said, we started with a verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we are mirroring the glory of God. A saved person has the glory, the, illumin, the illuminating of God within us. And that's not all. What's within us is atonement. We've been atoned for our sins. What's within us is forgiveness. We've been forgiven. We have the righteousness of Christ. We have the light of God. We have the bread of life. And we have cleansing and purity. That's all within the temple. And you want to give that away? Hmm. See, wherever we go, whatever we do, the Spirit of God is with us. He dwells within us. We are not our own. And that's what church discipline does. It says, you say you're the temple of God, but you refuse to repent. And so in the end, we're going to prove that you're not the temple of God. 
you will be treated as one outside the faith. You'll be treated as one who does not have the Spirit of God residing in them. Because you have not acted like the temple. So God's Spirit dwelling in us, look, brothers and sisters, is a precious gift. Can you imagine going through this life without the Spirit of God in you? How do you make decisions? How, how do you read this? How do you even understand this? And no wonder the world looks at our Bibles and goes, oh, these people are crazy. See, they don't have the Spirit of God with them. So the believer cannot think of his self or herself independently from God or from God's people. And one more thought, let me throw this in before I close this out in verse 20. We take each other wherever we go. Did that just get a little tight? So if we are the body of Christ, many members making up one body, and we choose to live in immorality, we don't only take Christ there, we're taking each other there. See the stewardship that we have? See how important it is that we handle this because of Jesus, because of the gospel, not legalism. Please do not think I'm teaching that in any way, but because Jesus has bought us with a price. Look at verse 20. For you've been bought with a price. That is slavery terminology. You were on the slave block. You were heading for condemnation. And I purchased you. I own you. Your body is now me. And what does the verse say? Therefore, if that's all true, glorify God in your body. In life, in death, in eternity. Glorify God in, my bo- in your body. Look, Jesus... Jesus did so much for us, and it's so interesting. Paul does not mention what the price is. You were bought with a price. Well, what's that price? He doesn't mention it. Because Christians know, whether you're in Corinth or in this room, you know that Jesus gave his perfect life to purchase us, to make us his temple. And one day, this body will, will be brought into his presence, and through all the finished work of the Jesus Christ that he completed, he'll bring us into his presence, and we'll, we'll be those redeemed sinners that are... That are that fully understand our freedom. And so don't abuse it today. Paul just finishes with one thing. Glorify God in your body because such were some of you. Father, we're such a mess. (laughs) Left to ourselves, Lord, we would just destroy everything good that you have given us. And Lord, I know this is heavy today as we work through very difficult issues that are happening in Corinth but are so relevant for today. And so, Lord, we turn to our only hope. Jesus, you are our hope. You've done so many great things for us. One, you have purged us. You have freed us. You have forgiven us. You have cleansed us. You've been everything we need. And you've given everything we need in your word, Lord. So, Father, shouldn't that be enough for us to live for you? Shouldn't that great sacrifice on the cross of our Son, your loving us so much that you would apply his righteousness to us and place your spirit within us, make us divine partakers of your divine nature? So, Lord, I pray that you would help us refrain from sin. 
to flee from it. Because Jesus, you're worthy to run away from things that you died for. Jesus, you are worthy to run away from things that you died for. Help us. Thank you that your grace and mercy is there when we fall and when we stumble. Because such were some of us. But you washed us, you sanctified us, and you justified us. Now may we live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.